Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of I Pledge Allegiance. This week, I'm really excited to bring on my good friend, Teo Leibowitz. He leads ventures at Uniswap. He formerly led strategy. And before joining Uniswap, he was a researcher at The Block. And I've known Teo since about 2018. Both Larry and I have known Teo since about 2017, 18. And he's someone whose opinions and perspectives I really respect and I think spends as much time as anyone on DeFi and just in the weeds of different protocols. So I think really excited to talk to him today about his crypto journey over the past few years. So without further ado, welcome Teo. Thanks. Really excited to be here today. And Derek, you have a perfect podcast voice. Thank you. I change it a little bit once the podcast starts recording. Many people, when they think of you now, they think of your role at Uniswap and leading ventures. But you've been in crypto, I think, for quite a long time. From, from your time as a student. So could you just give like a quick summary of, of how you got to Uniswap and what you were doing at the blog and just like how that all came together? Yeah, absolutely. I guess my introduction to crypto came through my college roommate who was and continues to be a very talented computer scientist. He started interning at Consensus in, I think it was the summer of 2015 or the summer of 2016. And then after that internship, he started working for the Ethereum Foundation, doing some early Casper research, sort of just through osmosis, started to become interested in the crypto space and particularly Ethereum. As an international student, so I was studying at Columbia at the time, but grew up in London, crypto sort of immediately struck me as an interesting solution to cross-border payments. So every month or so, my dad would send me an allowance of sorts. And I remember taking maybe five days for these wires to clear and costing quite a lot of money. And crypto struck me as an exciting alternative to sort of this legacy cross-border payment service. And then the other thing that I remember vividly thinking about at the time was potential for smart contracts to serve as an interesting alternative infrastructure layer for the sharing economy. So this was around the time that Uber was becoming particularly popular, other services like Airbnb. And it struck me as unfortunate that these platforms like Uber and like Airbnb were taking rather egregious fees simply for hosting this two-sided marketplace. I think in retrospect, this was a naive idea, and I don't think something that has happened to materialize over the past five, six years, namely because there's way more that goes into services like Airbnb and Uber than just matching sort of the the supply and demand side. Obviously, you need some kind of level of curation and recourse in the events that in the event that things go wrong. But yeah, certainly just I had this intuition that smart contracts and blockchain based payments had a ton of potential. And then after school, I decided to just continue pursuing research in the crypto industry, both first as an independent research analyst, and then Ended up joining the block as, I think, employee eight or nine in January of 2019. I actually met Mike McCaffrey, who later became the CEO of the block at a poker game in New York. We struck up conversation and then a couple months later, he joined the firm and recruited me over. And yeah, it felt like a really great environment for me to continue learning about the space, give me some time to get up to scratch and then beyond that to start forming my own opinions. And then practically speaking, it also provided a nice, reliable 
income, as well as just access to various different key industry players. What was the culture and what was working at the block at this time? Like, I remember back in 2019, honestly, the block was probably one of, if not the only research and media websites that I was really actively following in terms of quality content. There were others out there like Coindesk and others, but they were a bit heavier on the news and less focused on research per se. I'm just curious, like, what was it like early on and how did you enjoy it? It was very scrappy early on. So our first office was this WeWork down by Chambers Street. And I think we had two different cubicles. The exact team sat in one cubicle and the research team and the news team, of which there were five or six of us, had another cubicle. We had one window that looked out onto the light shaft, but we were on the third floor or the fourth floor, and so we didn't actually get any light. And by the end of each day, this little cubicle would be totally sort of suffocating. It was scrappy. We didn't have a ton of resources, but I think everyone sort of believed in this mission of providing impartial coverage of the crypto industry, especially an industry where there is often a ton of conflict of interest. As you said, the main media organization at the time before the block arrived was Coindesk. But Coindesk was owned and continues to be owned by DCG, DCG being one of the largest investment funds in the space and Larry's former employer. I think we felt and other participants in the crypto industry felt that there could be potential for conflict of interest. And we thought that there was an opportunity for an incredibly neutral player to emerge and provide a different perspective. I think the culture on the new side was doing more investigative pieces and really not pulling any punches. Research side was a bit more calmer in some sense, as in we just would spend a couple of weeks at a time trying to dig as deep as possible into new products or new protocols and just provide very comprehensive and thorough insight into developments in crypto markets. What were some of the things you spent the most time on. When I think of your time at the blog, I think of your research on synthetics and DeFi and MakerDAO and stablecoins. Curious what you remember the most. I would split my time between writing research reports and then writing this weekly column, Money 2.0 stuff, which absolutely was directly influenced by Matt Levine's money stuff and in many ways was a crypto pastiche of money stuff. And I really miss the opportunity to write money stuff. I think the research side tried to keep that as neutral and fact-driven as possible, whereas Money 2.0 stuff was this outlet for me to share my own opinions. And then I tried my best. I don't know if I really succeeded, but tried to add a slightly funny or satirical element to it. And I think a lot of people recognize this, but the crypto industry really is just a funny industry in many ways and could use a bit more satire. I think I've had a lot of luck throughout my career and my time at the block was also one of those just really lucky life events of sorts. So when I joined in 2019, this was just as the DeFi sector was starting to materialize. In fact, the very first research report that I wrote was about Uniswap V1, which had launched maybe two months before that. There weren't a ton of analysts covering the DeFi market and the development of the DeFi market. So 
I was able to sort of establish myself as a bit of a thought leader in that space. There's so many smarter people in the industry than me, but again, just not that many people are paying attention to that side of the market. I think I was one of the first people to sort of cover synthetics in a fairly rigorous way and other DeFi protocols, whether that was SET protocol or DYDX or ZeroX protocol, Dharma and others, Compound was in there too. The other really lucky thing at the time, and something I'm incredibly grateful for, is that 2019 was when June Analytics first came to market as well, or first started to grow. And because I worked at the block and I had some distribution, I think I attracted the attention of Frederick Hager, who's the co-founder CEO of June Analytics. And he called me up one day and said, look, I'd love for you to start using our platform. And I got back to him and said, That'd be awesome, but I don't know how to write SQL queries. And so he actually offered to tutor me and would take, I think, an hour or two hours out of his schedule every single week to hop on a call with me and teach me how to write SQL queries, which would absolutely never happen today. But it sort of gave me this additional tool in my arsenal to start evaluating different DeFi protocols and I think really did elevate the quality of my research. That's an amazing anecdote. We had the Dune guys, Frederick on earlier, and big fan of what they're doing. Moving on to, I think, Uniswap. So you're doing research and doing all this data stuff on Dune. And eventually, it obviously, people start reading it and you find your way to Uniswap. And I believe your early role was focused on strategy. But I think the natural question would be like, what does that actually mean? What is strategy? What were some of the things that when you joined, you started to work on? And how did that evolve over time. If you look up the textbook definition of strategy, it's mostly about sort of the efficient allocation of finite resources. So leveraging knowledge of a particular market or industry to answer questions like, how do we stay competitive? How do we accelerate growth? What should we be building? And importantly, what should we not be building? The strategy title in the concept of Uniswap, at least in the early days, was really just this very catch-all term. So I joined Uniswap Labs in the summer of 2020 as our first non-engineering hire. And so really my responsibilities extended to everything from business development to product analytics dashboards, leveraging some of my Dune querying skills, things like investor relations, some product research, product feedback, corporate development, and so on. So my title was strategy lead, but really I was doing pretty much everything non-engineering related at the time. Looking back on it, I do think of the strategy role as sort of this internal management consultant figure of sorts. And again, I think as long as you have the ability to think critically, have a willingness to roll up your sleeves and, and get your hands dirty and have that baseline foundation of industry knowledge, you can make a ton of progress. And I also feel incredibly lucky to have had that experience and encourage others to seek it out, especially if you're thinking about becoming a founder one day, because you just get this incredible cross-functional experience that I think is difficult to find in other contexts. Working very closely with the legal team and having to figure out comp side of things and having to dip your toes into data analysis and research and business development. So it's an accelerated MBA of sorts. And a really unique experience that I think has taught me quite a lot. I like how you frame that. Strategy is definitely something that I think touches every aspect of a startup. Everything has to tie back to some ultimate 
end goal that's important and a high priority. You've been there for almost at Uniswap for two and a half years. Two and a half years. DeFi has changed a lot since then. Uniswap has obviously evolved since then. Are there any specific things that you've changed your mind on since joining? Again, either about Uniswap or about DeFi broadly, if there's any strong opinions you held originally, and then being on the ground, you sort of massively had a shift in mindset. Yeah, I think a couple of things. My thinking around DeFi has evolved as the market has evolved. I think at the outset of DeFi in 2019, 2020, it was unclear whether DeFi products and protocols were going to see adoption from more sophisticated market participants. I think it started off as this really retail-driven phenomenon. And these days, I think the majority of liquidity being provisioned across different protocols and a majority of market activity is probably driven by professional shops or even groups that we might label as institutional. Other things that have changed over time, I think I was slightly more bullish in the early days that we'd see adoption of more exotic products, things like DeFi perpetuals or exotic structured products, those types of things, whereas that hasn't really materialized in a big way. I know you haven't changed your opinion on SNX. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't been following synthetics all that closely for a couple of years now. It's quite possible that they've introduced changes to the protocol and maybe it works uh, works a bit better these days. I think the concept of like offering infinite liquidity at zero slippage is is never going to be super successful. I'm definitely bullish on synthetic assets as a product class. As a follow-on, a more high-level question, because I remember in DeFi summer and a little before that, there was a lot of Kool-Aid and a lot of optimism for sure, but maybe even beyond that, about DeFi and how it's just going to take over the financial system after like five years. And and something we think about at Reverie is, and I'm sure you've seen this, all these narratives that always come about. And I'd say if you were to really simplify how people sit on narratives and what their views on narratives are, is one camp basically thinks, well, hey, to create the future you want, you have to will it into existence. And one way to do that is to create these narratives and to cheerlead them. And then there's the other camp, which is we don't really want to be promoters and cheerleaders. We want to build the thing, market the product, but we don't want to really create a reality distortion field around it. I'm super curious like what your thoughts on, on just narratives as a whole is and between those two buckets where you sit. Yeah, I think narratives can be effective marketing tools and in many ways do drive markets. I think even today we've seen Bitcoin rally quite hard as equities have fallen off and obviously the whole financial sector is really suffering. And that's why you've been driven by this narrative of Bitcoin as a self-sovereign asset and kind of hedge against some kind of major collapse in the financial system. I think it is difficult to sustain narratives over time without empirical results to show. Back in 2018, 2019, even more recently, lots of people have been excited about alternative L1s and advantages that they have to offer over something like Ethereum. And I think a lot of that excitement has died down over time as a lot of these other alternative protocols have failed to deliver and attract significant user bases. Yeah, totally. Switching gears a little bit and to get to a little bit more of a tactical questions, maybe just around decentralized exchanges and Uniswap before we move on to other topics. But 
I'm sure you guys study this a lot, but there's been so many Uniswap competitors at this point, and I feel like every month there's yet another AMM launching with a slightly different take on Uniswap, and it says we're the best thing ever. And very few, if any, actually stand the test of time. But something I really wanted to ask you is, if you had to name only three things that made Uniswap so successful early on, what would those three things be? The most important thing is these structural designs that the Uniswap protocol pursued. You did have products like Oasis before Uniswap protocol was invented, and Oasis was a purely on-chain central limit order book exchange. The problem with an on-chain central limit order book is that it's incredibly gas inefficient. Every time you want to update an order or cancel an order as a market maker, you have to submit a transaction on chain and you have to pay some gas cost. And so while central limit order books in the off-chain context happen to be incredibly efficient, and there's good reason why they're the dominant market structure in TradFi, they just don't work particularly well in this gas-constrained environment that is Ethereum and other blockchains. So I think that was this amazing innovation that Uniswap as an AMM offered to the market, which is that makes it very easy to offer continuous liquidity in a gas-efficient manner. As a liquidity provider, you just pursue this singular strategy, or that's now changing in V3, but you can provide liquidity and you can update your orders without having to actually submit a transaction every time the market moves. So that's one thing is having a slightly better understanding as to the constraints of the environment that we're developing a product in. And then from there, I think what Uniswap did very well in the early days, and I can't take a ton of credit for this because I don't think I was even part of the team at the time, but it really met the market where it was. So firstly, because market creation is permissionless on the Uniswap protocol, out the gate is able to support the long tail of tokens that weren't being listed on the major centralized exchanges at the time, whether that was Binance or Coinbase or Gemini and so on. So I think the first market that really blew up in a big way was ETH MKR. And MakerDAO already had a pretty decent following in DeFi circles, but there wasn't a liquid venue to trade these MKR tokens. And the Uniswap protocol was really able to come in and support that market. The second thing is that Cal, who's the design lead at Uniswap Labs, took this approach of creating the most simple user interfaces possible. So completely did away with the notion of limit orders. In fact, that wasn't even something the Uniswap protocol could natively support at the time. And instead, just focused exclusively on market orders and thereby obfuscating away the complexity that you find when using central limit order books. DeFi at the time was this primarily retail-driven phenomenon. And the Uniswap protocol and the Uniswap Labs web app were both able to sort of meet the market where they were. I think I probably remember to this day when I first used Uniswap. And the thing that stood out to me, just technical complexities aside, is the intuitive user interface. And frankly, the brand. It's such an intangible, fluid concept when talking about brand. And it's so qualitative. I think almost immediately, Uniswap was the best branded DAP and best user experience DAP in the market, certainly compared to the likes of Maker, for example. And I can only speak for myself, and this is completely anecdotal, but my sense is there's a lot of people in crypto who were just not comfortable using most DAPs then. 
and Uniswap was their first app that they really trusted. And it really had good resonance with that early cohort of power users who didn't want to play around with really funky out there interfaces. And they just wanted something that they could trust. And Uniswap was that amazing product back then and frankly to this day. Yeah, I definitely like to think that's the case. And this notion of trust that you reference, I think, was also a really important driver for success and continues to be this incredibly valuable property or characteristic that we can offer. So when Hayden was first building Uniswap protocol, he was directly inspired by the values of Ethereum and really wanted to build out this maximally decentralized product, entirely self-custodial, entirely transparent, and importantly, entirely immutable. And that was immediately a key differentiating factor from other products in the market. While a lot of other early DeFi applications did offer the ability to interface with them in a self-custodial fashion and weren't transparent, they weren't all immutable. And that introduced a semblance of risk, which is something that I think a lot of people wanted to, to avoid. Maybe a slightly technical slash wonky question, but something we think about at Reverie a lot, and I imagine you guys do too, but how important do you think retail order flow is for AMMs? And maybe compare that to a traditional brokerage. I think it's incredibly important. I think that you can sort of debate the theory of a DAX venue that only receives arbitrage flow and how profitable that might be for LPs. But in practice, arbitrage volume is primarily toxic. And so as an LP, if you're not also sitting on the side of what's known as uninformed flow, then you will just bleed out over time. There are different ways of, there's sort of different frameworks for thinking about LP returns. I think one that I'm particularly interested in these days is this framework proposed by Andreessen Horowitz's crypto research team called Loss Versus Rebalancing, which basically looks at how much value LPs and AMMs are leaking to arbitrages. On a dollar basis, or even on like an impermanent loss basis, these LPs can still ultimately be profitable, but that's only if they're willing to take some kind of delta risk. But if we assume they're just entirely delta neutral, you are going to leak value to arbitrages relative to a strategy where as an LP, you're just like actively rebalancing your portfolio through market orders on, on some kind of centralized exchange or alternative venue. So yeah, retail flow is definitely really important. And yeah, I think that's potentially why other forks of Uniswap have struggled to develop into sustainable competitors, which is that projects like SushiSwap were, were able to attract a ton of liquidity out the gate, but they weren't able to build out that retail demand side. And so once token rewards started to decline, there's still a ton of liquidity left. But the only flow those LPs were trading against was like pure arbitrage flow. And you quickly learn that it's really hard to remain profitable if you're just like constantly taking the other side of an arbitrage train. It's such a great point. And my sense is if you look at Web2 marketplaces and you kind of speak to the, the old timers about it, the guys who built the Ebays of the world, and you read the frameworks or mental models that VCs put out between maybe 1995 and 2010, the main lesson was if you bootstrap the supply side first, it ain't going to work. But if you start with the demand side and build up the supply side in parallel, you got a marketplace there. I can't help but think when looking at all of these Uniswap forks, SushiSwap being a great example, 
they started with the supply side, and that's the exact wrong side to choose when trying to bootstrap a marketplace. I think, as in, it's not easy to bootstrap the demand side either, to be honest. And I think projects like Blur are attempting to do that and have been relatively successful so far, but also unclear whether users will stick around once their very generous liquidity mining program comes to an end. There's no easy playbook to bootstrapping both sides of a marketplace. You referenced Uniswap's brand value earlier, and there is something as in, hey, you know a bad brand and bad UX and UIs when you see them, but brand is also this very qualitative and intransient property of sorts. And to some extent, in order to build a successful brand, you have to be in the right place at the right time and get a bit lucky. Just double clicking on, you mentioned Blur and how they're incentivizing demand in a different way. Not that the token incentives are new, but just the marketplace itself. What are your overall thoughts on their approach and why it's unique? Yeah, I think when it comes to NFT marketplace specific liquidity mining programs, what they've done, which is interesting, is trying to incentivize both sides in that they, my understanding at least, correct me if I'm wrong, but they provide rewards to traders. And then what's net new is that they're also incentivizing liquidity. So you earn rewards if you place orders in their order book. And I think rewards are proportional to how much liquidity you're placing relative to the mid-price. I think just going back to one thing you mentioned earlier, Teo, which is understanding where the market is and meeting it there is a really important factor. And the example you cited was Uniswap going after the long tail early on because that was what the market needed. That was the missing hole and Uniswap slotted in really nicely and used that really as a vantage point to build a brand, to build a reputation, to build a large user base and grow into this large distribution and compete in the major pools and the major assets, ETH, USDC, et cetera. And I think that you'd know better than me. To me, it looked like that happened over a few months to maybe a year or two, starting from early 2020 when DeFi started to pick up. Can you talk a bit more about your perspective on that? And I just remember in DeFi summer, it felt like a third of every conversation was about how different projects were incentivizing your pool ones or your pool twos on Uniswap and how important that was. And you don't hear that much about anymore. And it's really just about Uniswap as this massive liquidity venue for the major assets. That's a narrative that's changed a lot over time. Just curious if you would agree with that assessment and how you think about it. Yeah, I think I would largely agree. You asked me earlier why I think Uniswap grew into the successful product. And I talked about things like gas efficiency of AMMs versus central open order books and support for long-term markets and simple design and so on. I think another really important point that you just referenced is how conducive AMMs and especially sort of the X times Y equals K AMMs are to liquidity mining programs in a way that central limit order books aren't. Because LPs in AMMs like Uniswap V1 and V2 all share the same strategy, you can create these very simple and straightforward liquidity mining programs where everybody sort of deposits into the same pool and same strategy, and you simply distribute rewards pro rata to liquidity provisioned. 
that's a lot harder to do in central limit order books because you have a diversity of strategies and it's unclear whether you want to necessarily distribute rewards pro rata according to liquidity setting in the book or whether you want to distribute according to how close your liquidity is to the mid price. We're now sort of operating in this new era, the V3 era. I think in V1, V2, and I'd have to double check some metrics and some stats, but I think volume was quite evenly distributed across a variety of different pools. And these were primarily long-tail token pools. Whereas V3, in offering the opportunity for LPs to provide concentrated liquidity is far more conducive to supporting the short tail of assets, things like ETH, USDC, and WBTC, USDC, and, and so on. Whereas before, Uniswap used to mostly be about offering users an alternative venue to gain exposure to long tail assets. Now it actually serves as this venue to get very, very competitive execution quality on major assets. And if you look at volume distribution on Uniswap V3 today, you actually see that somewhere between 80 and 90% of volume goes directly to USDC, WBTC, USDC, and then stablecoin, stablecoin best. Moving on to different topics, I think one of, if not the major talking point in terms of crypto roadmaps is where the majority of activity will be. Right now, it's like, will it be on rollups? What kinds of rollups? L2s, will it be on alternative L1s? Is it going to be on app chains? Curious if you have a perspective on that. And knowing you, I'm assuming you might have some spicy contrarian takes here. So curious just how you think about it. Yeah, not too many spicy takes. As in whether we're moving towards this generalized rollup or app chain specific market is still pretty unclear to me. I see I see good arguments in favor of both approaches. I think products like Eigenlayer make the app chain specific argument quite a lot stronger. There's been this, going back to Harry's favorite topic of narratives, I think there's long been this narrative that as soon as L2s come to market, that's really going to unlock this big new wave of user activity and services basis to support hundreds of millions or billions of new users. And frankly, you look at the data and that clearly hasn't been the case. Yeah, it's still a bit unclear to me, at least over the next 12 months, 24 months, whether you know, products and protocols moving to L2s will actually unlock that much net new user activity or whether the market is still pretty content just to operate on L1s like Ethereum. Just to react to that. That's such a great point because I (laughs) hate to use the word narrative so much, but it's probably the best word we got. But there's so many narratives, so many stories out there that basically say, oh, hey, once we figure out scaling and transaction fees are close to zero, that'll unlock demand by a multiple of five to 100x or some weird number that you never really ask where people pulled out from. But to your point, there's already pretty cheap transaction fees in certain networks and L2s, and demand hasn't really changed all that much. And it does make me think, is the thing holding us back? Is it like an application thing, a use case thing, or is it truly scalability? My sense though, it's probably a bit of both, but more so on the use case application side, but curious to get everyone's reactions. I would think it's most of the emphasis is on the application side and utility being provisioned. I was 
maybe being slightly too facetious when I said that LTs have been around for a while now and haven't really driven any net new user activity, as in L2s are still fairly nascent. Bridging solutions are kind of bad right now. Multi-chain wallet support is also quite underdeveloped. So it's definitely still sort of a long way to go there on the UX side of things. But for the most part, I think cheaper transactions in themselves won't be a primary driver of user inflows. And instead, it's really up to application developers to come up with interesting new use cases that can provide some kind of real non-speculative benefit. Moving on a little bit to everyone's favorite topic, MEV. MEV is obviously something, again, going back to our favorite word narrative, something that is at the heart of many different narratives from, from many perspectives. I think Uniswap has historically been at center, or I guess more accurately, the origination of a lot of the research and activity in this field as the first major decks to take off. Curious just how you feel about this field. It's evolved a lot, again, since the initial Flash Boys paper. Curious just how you think about MEV broadly. We definitely spent a lot of time thinking about MEV at Uniswap Labs. And in fact, when I think about innovation in decentralized exchange market structure, I think pursuing methods to reduce MEV or potentially internalize MEV is a really promising line of research and development. And yeah, I think it's fantastic to see so many smart people spending so much time thinking through MEV and MEV mitigation techniques. And certainly the entire MEV space has changed with first the introduction of products like Flashbots Relay or Flashbots Protect, and then in this post-proof-of-stake environment where we effectively have some version of proposal builder separation. Adding on to that, I think there's all these different stakeholders in the MEV, you could call it supply chain or value chain. There is obviously the end users of these apps, there's the apps themselves and the wallets that provide the interfaces, there's the validators and builders and searchers. Do you have any thoughts on, in the most fair world possible, who actually has the leverage here? Where does that MEV value lie? Historically, it started off being captured by searchers and validators slash miners, and we're now seeing a large momentum. Maybe you could call it sharing that with a lot of these other stakeholders. Curious how you feel about this trend and if you even agree. I think the makeup of MEV distribution will change over the next few months and years. I think, first off, it's important to think about where MEV is actually generated. So there's been quite a few wallet products, for example, that have come out and said that their entire monetization strategy is going to revolve around capturing MEV that's generated by their users' transactions. And I think if you dig a bit deeper into MEV data, that feels quite unrealistic to me. The majority of transactions, just normal sort of transfers, don't actually generate MEV at all. The primary sources of MEV are DEXs, whether through upcharge flow or some form of backrunning. And then a smaller percentage comes from 
lending protocols and collateral liquidations. There's also non-lending related Oracle MEV. But yeah, for the most part, it's these DEX protocols and lending protocols that are serving as the sources of MEV. So yeah, I think there's a fairly good argument to make that DEX protocols themselves or their developers have a good opportunity to capture some of that MEV, potentially internalize some of that MEV and return it to users, or just keep it for themselves. And then I do, to some extent, like the idea of validators also capturing a portion of MEV themselves, if only because it serves as a useful driver of network security. Makes a lot of sense. And you touched on the wallet side briefly. And in the recently, we obviously saw Uniswap soft launch its wallet. I believe past few weeks at ETH Denver, some folks got access in person. And can you talk a little bit about the underlying motivation behind building a wallet and how it stacks up compared to other wallets that people may have used in the past? Sure. So I think our motivation for building out a mobile wallet was twofold. For one, we just recognized from first principles that building our own wallet could serve as a really valuable onboarding funnel. So it's a really great distribution tool, particularly in light of FTX's collapse. This notion of being able to self-custody assets has grown in popularity. And then if you think outside of crypto, so much of retail financial services activity already takes place on mobile. A strong wallet offering combined with an affordable on-ramp can potentially be this really compelling alternative to centralized exchanges as a onboarding tool to the on-chain economy. And then beyond that, just over the past two, three years, we've spoken to a lot of Uniswap users and we continuously hear complaints from those users about existing wallet solutions. So yeah, some of it is just bad UX, UI. Some of it is complexity around key management. As I mentioned earlier, there aren't too many wallets out there that offer a particularly seamless multi-chain experience or even like a native swap experience. If you think about Uniswap Labs, I think on the one hand, we have this incredibly strong protocol development background and some of the best smart contract engineers in the world. But then combined with that, we also have this really strong product sensibility. And that feels like a really powerful combination to put to this wallet creation opportunity. There's not at all to disparage other wallets that already operate in the market today. And in fact, I think the version of the wallet that we pushed out sometime last week, I think it's a really good foundation, but it's certainly not a fully fleshed out product. And there's a ton of work that we need to do as far as continuing to add new features, continuing to support more sophisticated key management solutions, whether that's through account abstraction or MPC support or so on. I think some really strong teams out there, we've definitely taken inspiration from some of the other players in the market. And we definitely don't take our product for granted. We recognize that there's a ton of work to do to make sure that it's ready for prime time and a larger audience. I personally can't wait to test it out. At this point, we've spoken a lot about, Taylor, your background, decentralized exchanges, narratives, gosh, a lot of narratives, MEV stuff, scaling. Now is a pretty good chance for us to chat a little about Uniswap Ventures, which is your current role. And I don't think you've publicly done a podcast about it. 
we chatted obviously in private about it, but what was it like going from having like an operating role and a research role before that to doing venture investments now? And just maybe give the audience a little bit of info on how Uniswap Ventures sees the world and what sort of stuff you guys are investing in. In many ways, I think of ventures as an extension of some of my previous strategy responsibilities. I used to spend a lot of time doing competitive analysis and trying to stay on top of market developments. And ventures is a really great vehicle through which to do that, provides direct access to cutting edge teams and entrepreneurs. And I get to take that information and relay that back to the team and use it to inform our own strategy and product roadmap. But yeah, Uniswap Labs Ventures started at the beginning of 2022. And publicly, we say that we have these two objectives. One is to use it to develop integrations and partnerships and occasionally you know, pursue some M&A activity. The Genie acquisition from mid-2022 was, was actually a deal that was originally sourced through Uniswap Labs Ventures. It's really valuable, I think, to invest directly in partners and to formalize a relationship through the ventures practice and then use that to establish a seat at the table as a design partner and to get early access to different features and products. And then the second objective of ventures is to leverage our experience and expertise as this very crypto native organization, whether that's across protocol development or product or operations or legal hiring to help other teams and entrepreneurs building in this industry. Uniswap Labs has been through this zero to one growth process and we're relatively successful today, but it hasn't been without its challenges. And I think we've learned a lot throughout that process and to the greatest extent possible, we want to be able to share those learnings with other teams. I think the more successful teams and products and the more robust infrastructure that there is to offer in this industry, the more successful we will be as a company and as a product. And if there's another really, really compelling use case that we get to incubate or contribute to through ventures, that ends up attracting millions of net new users into the crypto industry, we do expect some percentage of that activity to funnel back to our product suites as well. And then, yeah, selfishly, I'm really excited by the opportunity to lead the ventures practice. Firstly, it gives me the ability to sort of LARP as an investor and learn about the investment cycle and what it takes to make good calculated risk decisions. And then secondly, I've always really enjoyed working with early stage companies and staying on top of market developments. And yeah, this is just a really good excuse to chat with really smart people and get a six months, 12 months, maybe two year head start as to where the space might be moving. That's an awesome overview. And maybe you can give us a quick feel for some of the categories you've invested in or are excited by. For example, if you maybe look at the last 10 deals that you've done, if you remember them, what sort of stuff has Uniswap Ventures been investing in? Yeah, it's funny because we haven't actually written a check in 2023. I have to remember what year we're in. Are you saying Uniswap is running out of cash? No, I'm not saying that. <laughs> very, very much a business and still taking pitch meetings. But yeah, so far there hasn't been a project that's really taken my fancy. I think the venture landscape also looks 
very different this year than it did at the beginning of 2022. But we do have 27 or 28 phenomenal portfolio companies, but we don't take this particularly prescriptive or thesis-driven approach to investing. I think theses can be really valuable for standard funds, so non-corporate venture funds. So if you have to go out and raise from LPs, then it helps to have a sort of coherent message and vision that you can share and raise off of. But Uniswap Labs Ventures operates far more opportunistically. So to some extent, I look at the Uniswap Labs roadmap and our set of objectives for the quarter or for the year and do try and focus on categories or projects that might be able to contribute to those objectives or advance those objectives. But otherwise, I'm just happy to take calls with founders that are operating markets that I find interesting and might be novel and unique and, again, have the ability to drive the industry forward. So as far as some recent categories that we've invested in, this won't be too surprising, but various different DeFi protocols, and in particular DeFi protocols that are building on top of the Uniswap protocol. Data infrastructure is a big one for us. Some customer support applications, and then some other low-lying infrastructure, whether that's cross-chain bridging or non-blockchain related stuff like peer on-ramp service providers. We couldn't agree more, by the way, on like not having theses and maybe hypotheses are all right, but theses can sort of get you in trouble. A lot of investors may sometimes fundraise off a thesis and they'll be wedded to it for long after it's overdue and long after it's proven wrong. But if you went to LPs in the public and you said, well, here's my thesis, it's really hard to go away from it. But if you have a hypothesis, it's a little bit easier because it's less formal. Exactly. I feel really bad for all the metaverse funds of 2022 or the Dow tooling funds and probably having a bit of a hard time these days. Not as hard as SVB though. Too soon. Maybe one more Uniswap Ventures tale. Are there like categories that investors are finding really, really hot that you personally are just completely apathetic to or not as excited or jazzed up about as others are? It's always interesting to hear the contra takes that people like you have. Yeah, there's a couple that come to mind. And these are categories that I might be less excited about, but certainly I don't want to be overly dismissed as well. And perhaps I just need to do a bit more homework myself. One category is order flow auctions. So we were discussing MEB a bit earlier and who might have leverage in the MEB supply chain. I think these generalized order flow auction services suppose that MEB is a bit more sort of normally distributed versus power law distributed. But if you do work on the assumption that it is power law distributed, then I think there are particular types of products and protocols that are going to have more leverage and it's going to be hard to make the case to those types of products that they should necessarily share margins with some kind of third-party order flow auction provider rather than just building out those capabilities as an extension of the protocol itself. And then another category, I get a lot of pitches for NFT-backed lending protocols. And generally, this category of products that caters to pro NFT traders and pro and quote unquote, I do struggle with those types of products just because it's unclear to me whether the concept of a pro NFT trader actually exists and can even exist in the future. I think NFTs are just not particularly conducive to being a liquid asset class. 
because it's very difficult to manage inventory risk correctly in a way that it's not for more liquid assets like ERC-20s. And so that makes it difficult to support lending markets because you need a liquid underlying market in order to support liquidations and to make it difficult to manipulate Oracle prices. And then even on the trading side, I think you can try your best to incentivize liquidity in, in NFT markets, but you only really get so far because in more volatile markets or in down markets, you'll find that liquidity providers really struggle to manage inventory risk and over time will just bleed out to more toxic flow and never really be able to come back and operate in a sustainable way. So yeah, between OFAs and the pro NFT category, I'm continue to be a bit skeptical, but again, open to having my mind change there. Chetia, we chatted a lot about tactical stuff, you know, swap ventures now, decentralized exchanges, industry events, maybe some fun random grab bag of questions. Are you ready? I think so. Okay. You sort of mentioned that you were playing poker back in the day, and maybe you still play poker, but something that's a clear commonality among many crypto people is they are poker players. And a lot of the, it seems to me anecdotally, the poker community joined the crypto community pretty early on. But I'm super curious, what sort of skills do you think poker teaches and how do you use them in day-to-day life? Yeah, I think there's a lot of overlap between the crypto crowd and poker players, partly because poker players were getting a ton of utility out of crypto in the early days. All these offshore poker sites that don't support denominated deposits. And so all these games were being funded by crypto, sorry, and then withdrawals would all be crypto denominated. There's also just both poker players and crypto speculators tend to be relatively degenerate. (laughs) As much as poker players like to say that they have fantastic bankroll management, maybe degenerate isn't the right word, but maybe just have less of an aversion to taking risk. But yeah, what lessons does poker teach me? I think a couple. One is this idea of thinking probabilistically. So unlike something like chess, Poker is a game of imperfect information. And so you have to sort of work with the information available and then fill in some gaps. I think that can be quite valuable when it comes to trying to suss out where the crypto market in general might be moving. Another important thing that poker teaches you is not to be results oriented. So really promotes this idea of taking information available and trying to come up with the best possible decision, but not being too bummed out if things ultimately move against you. That's a really good lesson for both a good way of operating professionally, but also just a great way of thinking about life in general. There's only so much that you can prepare for and unexpected things will happen and you just sort of have to roll with the punches. And then, yeah, I think the other thing about poker is that it is this beautifully adversarial game. It's ultimate PvP and it requires you to adjust your strategy in real time and be very sensitive to new information and not take anything for granted. And again, I think that's a really useful way of thinking about corporate strategy and product strategy. The other thing as well, sorry, one final thing about poker is that obviously there's a lot of game theory in poker. And when it comes to mechanism design or in the Uniswap context, market design, you do have to continuously be thinking about how different agents in this system, whether it's traders or liquidity providers or arbitrage bots or generalized MEV bots are going to 
interact with the training system that you're developing. And always having that front of mind is really useful. Forces you to think about potential edge cases that might arise and solutions to mitigate them. It's so interesting to me. Having grew up playing poker and I learned poker pretty late in life, like maybe mid-20s. My parents never really were into it. And the thing that really struck me immediately after studying the game a bit is, like you said, it does teach you to think in probabilities, which there are games, I think other games that do that, but poker is just so simple about it in a way really beautiful. And then the other thing I think you mentioned is not to be like wedded to a particular outcome, but just know the probabilities or the distribution of outcomes, right? And if you took the, the highest probability outcome and you still lost, that's still a good outcome, even though maybe you lost that hand. The one thing I really struggle with, and I think you'd be an awesome person to talk about with, is the thing that struck me with poker is it does teach you deception and reading the room and reading the signals and sometimes sending fuzzy signals to the other players, maybe crypto people would call it psyops, to increase your odds of success or decreased odds of success for other players. And I've always struggled with this one. I see sometimes the crypto poker trader types on Twitter using that tactic, and it doesn't sit well with me personally. So I'm curious how you feel about it. Yeah, great question. Love me some psyops. I think you can be an effective poker player and compartmentalize that while still take valuable lessons around taking calculated risk and not being results-oriented and bankroll management and so on. But put the more deceptive elements aside. And poker is very much a zero-sum game. And I think the more effective and successful players in crypto to date have taken the opposite approach and really trying to pursue positive-sum games. If you think about Uniswap Protocol, for example, so much of our success has come from third parties building on top of the protocol. And if you look at what Coinbase is doing right now, which I think is really admirable, is they are contributing a ton to public goods and whether that's through then you roll out the pool based or whether that's through this recent product launch, wallet as a service or open sourcing, quote unquote, their fee on ramp. I think there are some valuable lessons to take from poker, but when it comes to operating in this more professional context, I think if you do pursue this aggressively zero-sum approach, then you're just not going to make too many friends. It is going to affect your brand value and your reputation, which I think are invaluable, and it's going to hard to be successful over the long term. Moving on, I think something that every person in crypto can relate to is, I think, just how much content there is out there, especially for someone in your role that's trying to have a bird's eye view of the landscape and get a sense of where the industry is going and how your company or protocol should adapt for that. I'm curious, what does your information consumption habits look like? On a week-to-week basis, what do you read and how do you stay up to date on things you see as important trends? Twitter continues to be a good resource. A couple of blogs that I have been reading semi-religiously recently. One is the new Frontier Tech blog. So Frontier Tech is this consulting firm being led by Stefan, who was previously a product manager at Flashbots, and him and his team have been putting out some really interesting writing around the MEV space and account instruction. And so I encourage everyone to go read that stuff. There's a researcher at FrogSwap who's been putting out some really great work, taking a deeper dive into 
AMM, order flow dynamics, and calculating markout for for traders and LPs, and looking at where toxic flow is coming from and distribution of toxic flow across different pools. And that work has been really impressive. And then that same research, I think, also just has a personal blog where they synthesize market structure commentary, whether that's from groups like AQR or Citadel. So that's been really interesting. And then, yeah, I like to stay up to date on things happening outside of crypto, primarily finance-related. So I read Joe Weidenthal's Markets newsletter most mornings. Matt Levine is obviously a mainstay. And I'll sort of keep up to date with different FT columnists and Wall Street Journal columnists as well. Last question before we wrap things up. I think it's safe to say that Coinbase and Uniswap are really the two major exchanges and wallets, at least for US-based users. Obviously, Binance internationally is enormous. But from a high level, how do you think about Coinbase and Uniswap strength and weaknesses and the market structure? I think Uniswap Labs takes enormous inspiration from Coinbase. I think, frankly, they operate at a scale that is far, far greater than ours. And I think we often publicly talk about them as a competitor, but we really do have a long way to go as far as building user market share. So yeah, Coinbase has just incredible distribution. I think they have somewhere on the order of 100 million accounts and tens of millions of monthly active users. I think Coinbase being a public company is really helpful and a massive strategic advantage now. Firstly, it just gives them this particular reputation and trust. And I think that's particularly important in in a post-FTX environment. They have ready access to capital markets and they do put that capital to use. I think they spent on the order of $560 million on marketing in 2022. Uniswap Labs has, I think, never spent any money on marketing. And part of that is because maybe we don't think our products are quite ready to market in a scalable way. But the other thing is that we are comparatively resource constrained. They also have just this fantastic fiat on-ramp product and really strong banking relationships and partnerships. And then they have this enormous team as well. So I think the latest number was somewhere between 3,500 and 4,000 people. And so they can afford to take a percentage of that team and assign them to new product lines and build out this pretty diversified product suite, which I think is going to benefit them well over the long term. And by comparison, Uniswap Labs is about 105 people right now. So we have a million ideas as far as new products that we want to build, but there's only so many engineers and designers and PMs and so on that we can staff on a project at any given time. That being said, we do have this fundamental structural operational advantage over the likes of Coinbase, which is that the Uniswap protocol, this exchange mechanism or trading facility operates entirely autonomously and it operates 24-7, 365, no matter how volatile market conditions might be. In fact, just this past weekend, Uniswap protocol saw all-time high volumes, I think on the order of $12 billion, which was more than double our previous all-time high, while other exchanges are really struggling to manage their loads. So on a per dollar volume basis, our engineers go go a lot further. And I think that's really cool. There's definitely advantages to operating as a smaller team and being a bit more 
dynamic and scrappy. I think another structural advantage that Uniswap offers is the ability to self-custody assets. I don't think self-custodying assets is necessarily for everyone, but optionality is really valuable. And then another thing that Uniswap protocol has over Coinbase is that it is universally accessible. It sort of operates on the blockchain, it operates on the internet, and we don't need to go out and open new markets and invest a ton of time and capital to establish presence in different geographies because anyone with an internet connection can trade on the Uniswap protocol. In that sense, it's more fundamentally scalable than Coinbase might be. Although again, they do already operate in a lot of markets already and and are likely going to continue growing their international presence over the coming years. So yeah, I think there's these inherent advantages and disadvantages that both groups have to offer. And I guess I would predict that both will continue to have a presence over the coming years. I don't see sort of the centralized exchange, decentralized exchange market as necessarily winner take all. I think what's really cool is that there is optionality and flexibility and users can gravitate towards different products depending on their utility function. Teo, this has been a wonderful chat about a lot of different topics. I think you bring quite a unique perspective having worked at the blog and obviously now many years at Uniswap. So really appreciate you coming on and sharing your thoughts today. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Apologies for all the rambling, but it's been super fun and looking forward to the next one. If you'll ever have me back, TBD. Definitely.